This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. I wanted to first just put a, um, a hope out there that whatever we talk about today is for the benefit of um, you all and for our communities and for our planet. So I hope that we will take this as a, a kind of collective space to um, reflect and to integrate some of the work from this book um, that Tim has put out. And so I want to do an intro for Tim, maybe a little differently, as some of you know who have read the book, he's uh, very unabashed in his willingness not to extract the kind of raw human experience um, out of the path of mindfulness and self-compassion and social justice. And so although he has a rather impressive professional um, background with working uh, with Thich Nhat Hanh for 20 years and, um, you know, speaking in Ivy League schools and all of these wonderful things, um, I wanted to to speak to the, the kind of beauty of this text, which I'm sure you've seen is called uh, How to Stay Human in a Fucked Up World. And... Um, the beauty of that is the choice to claim the entirety of the human condition and uh, to stay human. And so I wanted to start by reading for everyone t- uh, Tim's real human bio. And this is the one that gives us insight into the source of your greatness. Um, the one that reveals the arc of human liberation, which contrary to the tales of enlightenment and spiritual identity and liberation that um, are constructed mostly with Palo Santo and Ganesha tattoos, uh, this one speaks to um, something that can invite ordinary humans, all of us, um, into this process. And so Tim describes this um, as a process that helped him change from someone with an intense amount of suffering and self-destructiveness to someone with real intimacy and harmony in his life. And so, Tim, this is how you describe your your experience. Um, I can almost guarantee that when I was first exposed to mindfulness and compassion training as a 19-year-old college student, I was a much more fucked up person than you are. I grew up poor in Boston with a single alcoholic mother. I was constantly bullied, homeless as a teenager, and I never knew my father. By the time I got to college, I was angry, lonely, and had few social skills. When a political science professor assigned me to read Peace is Every Step by Thich Nhat Hanh, it changed everything. I immediately recognized that mindfulness and compassion were exactly what was missing from my life. So um, I'd love to just hear from you why it's important to embrace what is authentic and um, our mistakes and our misfortunes. Why is it important to stay human? Yeah. Yeah, it's funny because I've been thinking about um, 
the whole idea of like something being important or not. And like, for me, I'm really happy. I think that our practices, like our, our, our spiritual practice or, or whatever we're doing in our lives, the more that it's rooted in something that feels like what, what you want from your life or like who you want to be or, or like, like a, your authentic aspiration, the more actual energy there is to kind of drive it. And I think the more that it's rooted in trying to be the right way or trying to practice right or what is the act, like what's like, what is authentic mindfulness? What is like the right way to practice, you know, whatever I'm doing or what's like, um, like those kinds of questions I think can end up with us being driven by a sense of living up to other people's expectations. And as soon as that happens then our practice and our lives kind of become more dead. And I, I feel like for me, so when I think about my own um, practice of mindfulness and, the and, and my meditation practice, what it comes down to is kind of recognizing like, who do I wanna be in the world? Um, when I was at, uh, in university, uh, I was introduced to a meditation, sort of my first meditation teacher, her, her name was Joanne Friday. She lives in Rhode Island, uh, near where I went to college. And my experience of her and a lot of people that I've known who've gotten to know her over time, my experience of her was she had just met me and I felt like she loved me as much or more than anyone that I'd ever met. And I was just really thinking about wanting to be that kind of person in the world. Like what, like, what could I do? Like what kind of life could I live that would be more kind of valuable and fulfilling and, you know, for me at least, than kind of being the kind of person who um, people meet you and they feel like you love them. And I was just like, okay, that's, so what does she do? Like, that's what I want to be. And so a lot of it comes down for me to the ways that I've learned to practice that I find actually feel, um, offer me relief and liberation from the, the ways that I'm not like that. Like all, all the, one of the things that Joanne would say is, um, is if you're, if you're ever interacting with somebody and it's, you know, whatever, it's not working for you. And you're like, I wonder, is this because they're suffering? She say, sort of ask yourself, well, are they, do, do they seem like they're overflowing with joy and love for everyone they meet? Because if they're not, they're suffering. Because that's what someone looks like when they're not suffering. And so for me, it's this recognition that it's the suffering in me that kind of, that's what's kind of getting in the way of being the kind of person that I wanna be. 
And then over time, recognizing that what actually that, that suffering isn't that that uh, suffering is is this part of life that's really a part of our human experience that's asking for love as opposed to like something to avoid or something to get away from or something that's sort of like wrong or, you know, how, however we want to relate to it. It's not like, it's not a mistake. It's like, oh, there's suffering in me, which means there's a part of me that's asking for love and understanding. And what actually makes a mammal suffer less is love and understanding. And so I feel like that that for me, and so that's led to this, this kind of practice that really kind of looks at, okay, so where is like, where are the parts in me that are in need of love and understanding? Where are the parts of me that are suffering? And if I can attend to those and give them what they need, then the result is like a organism that's doing better. That's like has, it's a more how I want to live. There's such a tendency to operate in the perspective of um, right and wrong, right? We're sort of filled with that and, and uh, or comparison, right? Um, probably many of us have heard this phrase, like, don't should all over yourself. Yeah. And I love this aspect of Buddhist philosophy that there is an invitation to shift from this kind of dualistic paradigm of right and wrong to really observing cause and effect and to getting curious. And I'm hearing a lot of curiosity in what you're saying about like, who am I really? And what effect do I want to have on other people? I think you even mentioned that question in here of just starting to ask yourself, what effect do I have when, when I leave a conversation with someone? And I think it's a really beautiful uh, intention to put out there, aspiration to put out there that they would feel fully loved and seen. Yeah, thanks for that. Let's talk about compassion mm -hmm. um, as a force to prevent overwhelm and respond to suffering. You mentioned about um, you know, the kind of pervasiveness of suffering that's going on and how we can sort of use uh, recognition of suffering to unveil the needs that are there and, and respond to those either for ourselves or for others. Um, I want to read a quote from the book that captures some of the essence of the core question of this book. Um, you say, looking around today, it's hard to escape the conclusion that our world is exquisitely fucked. But I refuse to let everything that's fucked up in the world strip me of my humanity. You outlined what is challenging about staying human in a fucked up world by noting the critical role of how we respond to the immensity of suffering that we confront in our day-to-day -day lives. Of course, we know this may encompass interpersonal struggles, uh, internal struggles, but also confronting the kind of sociopolitical and environmental degradation that compose our current moment. Um, you suggest that by responding with compassion, we can prevent this overwhelm and not turn away from the suffering. Um, you know, whether suffering looks like a kind of falling into despair or social, social isolation, uh, addiction to social media. Um, maybe it looks more like the toxic righteousness that you mentioned, where we have a kind of anger-fueled self-certainty and defensiveness that we bring to the table. Um, at the same time, there's just um, as much a value in bringing compassion to bear on suffering. Um, and these experiences of joy 
are what fuel the ability to hold that space of compassion. You even mention a quote from uh, Tanahasi: "I would not have you de- descend into your own dream. I would have you be a conscious citizen of this terrible and beautiful world." Let's talk about why it's equally important to acknowledge and be present with both what's terrible and with what's beautiful um, in the world today. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's it's easy to. Th- <clears throat> sort of in a moment to moment way it's easier to it's easy to like in some moments feel like everything in the world is awful and then in other moments be like no it's not and it's sort of like we're like looking to kind of come to some certainty like define like okay so like the world is this is like good or bad like but kind of like looking for that kind of um place to land um so for me, again, it kind of comes down to purpose. It comes down to um, we have a lot of different ways that we can live in the world. And what I'm particularly interested in is I, I want to be able to – there's no way to get through life without being confronted by all of this suffering, right? And so what we can do is tr- do our best to avoid it and kind of like escape into whatever bubble of privilege that we can find to try to like distance ourselves. Um, Or we can dive fully in and often kind of end up overwhelmed and like like helpless and and kind of feeling powerless. But the, the, like, so, you know, one of the things that you study like resilience, it's a really interesting idea and I think it's something that that we don't think I would like for us to think even more deeply about and to have a, a deeper conversation about. Cause like when we when we talk about resilience, when we talk about compassion, something that I'm really interested in is um we know that everybody has a limited capacity to be present with suffering whether it's your own suffering or with some somebody else's. Like sometimes, no matter who you are, somebody can be having a hard time and you can be like present and helpful. And sometimes we get overwhelmed. And that's true for everybody. The, the question is sort of like, is it possible to develop that capacity to kind of grow my ability to be present and helpful in the face of suffering? The thing that's really interesting um, is we know in the field of clinical psychology, there's a a test. It's called the Facilitative Interpersonal Skills Assessment. And what it does is it measures uh, how you respond in highly challenging situations. Um, So you get these prompts of people upset or you know whatever like some one of them it's a it's a test for therapists so it's often like one of them might say uh every time i talk to you i feel worse you know i come to you to feel better but i leave feeling worse and then you're supposed to respond and uh what we know from the literature is that you when you uh assess this person's response based on their capacity to be warm, empathic, alliance-oriented, sort of have maintaining kind of hope and positive expectations, these qualities, 
that is perhaps the only existing predictor of clinical efficacy for a therapist um, is basically your ability to demonstrate these personal qualities in a difficult interaction. There isn't really a word in the English language to talk about the set of skills that allows you to be helpful when someone's in distress. The close, so people like Richard Davidson use the word compassion to talk about that set of skills, but there's a, the issue with that word is that it's a really vague word. And I have, it's like when people take a word that's used very broadly and try to give it a narrow definition, it's always, you're kind of begging for confusion. Um, and you're trying to kind of give like a sort of a specific meaning to a very general word. But I, I think the issue is that there is a set of skills, a set of qualities that predict our ability to be helpful in the face of distress. And whether you want to call that resilience or compassion or something else, like whatever, whatever it is, mindfulness is what Thich Nhat Hanh calls it. Um, but again, people have started using the word mindfulness to mean radically different things than what he means by it. Um, that set of skills, the, the the set of skills or the set of qualities that allow me to, like someone says, like, um, I don't trust you. I Like, I think you're phony. You're smiling at me right now, and I don't buy it. And the question is, in that moment, do I view you as a threat? And my whole physiology engages in defensive tactics. Or do I view you as someone who's suffering and in need of care? And that sort of training ourselves in the ability to like, to experience suffering in me or in another person and have that opening, reaching out kind of response as like, and like growing that ability um, is, yeah, it's like, it makes the world like more livable. Because what happens if, if your capacity to cope with suffering, if your capacity to be helpful with suffering is just sort of kind of minimal, then you need to spend a huge amount of your energy trying to escape from your own suffering and from other people's. But like we were talking earlier about equanimity, um, it's like if, if you're able to develop the, these qualities in yourself that also in hard moments, you're able to be present and open and compassionate, then what that allows you is, is to be alive and human and, and, and in relationship and just more of the time. Yeah, some of the terms that come to mind for me are distress tolerance, right? Yeah. So 
um, which sometimes is defined in terms of our own ability to tolerate the kind of difficult or adverse internal experiences that we have and to not turn away from them. Um, you know, uh, emotional approach is another way we try speaking about it. And certainly in the resilience literature, there's evidence that the degree to which we're able to approach our emotional experiences, especially our difficult emotional experiences, that this is predictive of resilience outcomes. But it's really nuanced as well, right? It isn't just always constantly turned towards. In fact, George Bonanno and others are looking at resilience trajectories and saying, hey, you know, there's actually an adaptive quality to emotional avoidance at times or to turning away. We may need to do that to survive. And so, um, you know, to be able to discern what is the most adaptive characteristic at any given time, which is sometimes called regulatory flexibility, um, to be able to bring to bear the, the skills and, and uh, the coping strategies that are needed for whatever is arising, but certainly to be able to have a kind of unconditional regard towards self and towards others uh, invites into the space a sense of belonging, a sense of okayness that, you know, how you're showing up and who you are right now is acceptable here. And this kind of um, belonging uncertainty that we feel so much in culture today is actually having huge impacts on anticipatory stress, on stress outcomes, this sense of do I belong here? And so when we're able to open to one another in times of suffering, when we're able to witness that difficulty and to be able to see the beauty in absolutely everything is perhaps, you know, one of the highest skills we can have. And um, this was kind of um, put to me by a teacher of mine of, I, I want you to be able to see the beauty in everything. And at that time, I think it was about 23. And so it was a lot of like, I can't see the beauty in like cars and plastic and chemicals yeah. and like this. And I was, I was working on that a lot in my meditation of like, how do I like hold space for that and not turn away and not judge this thing and, and, you know, embrace that it is here or, or learn, you know, from the emotions that are there that, oh, this is something that really matters to me. There's a reason for this anger or rejection. And it's because something I love is at stake, right? The, the, the natural world is at stake. And so um, a few things happened that kind of helped me learn to embrace. But one of them was actually down here walking in the mission. I lived in San Francisco at that time. And it was the evening time. And I was walking down the street. And I saw in the middle of the sidewalk from far away this like pile of gems. There was like just a pile of jewels in the middle, you know, and I'm like, what is that? And I, I got a little bit closer to it and I'm like, how is there a pile of gems in the mission? You know, did I consume a, something I didn't realize? And um, no, uh, it was someone who had thrown out their television and it was the screen of the television, which is just made out of glass that had just shattered on the street. And I thought, oh, how funny that our perception of things, how we appraise what we're seeing shifts so much, the meaning we give to it, the way that we respond. And when I thought it was a pile of rubies, I was like fascinated, this gorgeous thing. And then it was a TV and I could feel the judgment that was 
is there, right? The the kind of conditioned habitual response pattern that tell me, oh, this modern technology piece isn't there. And so, you know, one of the protective factors I think that compassion and mindfulness offer to us is to be able to recognize to what extent we are appraising things as threats. And it is that appraisal of something as a, a threat that is actually stimulating the physiological and neurobiological and behavioral responses that we have to stress, whatever that word means anymore, yeah. right? Um, and so here with mindfulness, we have an opportunity to sort of shift into a more present moment awareness to say, how do I want to appraise or construe this situation? And so it was just a funny like, you know, poke in the ribs from the universe of like, oh, really? You don't think TVs are beautiful? How yeah. about this? Right. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> the other thing that I wanted to say about, so you we were talking about like being able to, to look at like what's beautiful and what's horrible in the world. The way that Thich Nhat Hanh talks about mindfulness practice is he'll say that there are um, basically two sides to mindfulness practice. There's the, the, side of mindfulness practice that's about cultivating joy and the side of mindfulness practice that's about transforming suffering. And he'll talk about, he, he, he'll say, if you focus on one and neglect the other, you end up with bad psychic circulation. Um, but like, um, I've, I've always loved that kind of like term that he uses. But what, what he means is, I think we all know if you try to just focus on what's good in life and in the with the hope of kind of avoiding what's difficult that the you know suffering doesn't go away and it kind of forces its way into your life and shows up in different ways and then conversely there are a lot of people who just focus so much on either their own suffering or or the suffering in the world to the point that they just get exhausted and overwhelmed and this sort of capacity to regulate, to be able to understand. So if we were to take as kind of like two core practices, there's a fucking million ways to, to sort of train your mind. But at least from the way that, that I've studied with Thich Nhat Hanh, there, there's sort of these two core practices and the practice of cultivating joy comes down to training your attention to notice what's already beautiful in this moment. Um, there are a lot of really beautiful people in this room who are gathered because they care about these kinds of issues and practices. And it's just like, it's fucking great. We're alive. Um, that's really good. <laughs> um, you know, we, we have a, a lot of needs that are met in this moment. And there's a lot of beauty that's here. Um, and so the practice of cultivating joy is, is the ability to notice that and the practice of transforming suffering, he describes as the practice of recognizing and embracing suffering with love and compassion. And the question of like when to sort of move back and forth between am I focusing on the suffering that's present in me and trying to embrace it, or am I focusing on what's beautiful in life? And a lot of that has to do with, you know, it's like a trial and error, but there's like experiences of joy at the very least give us the energy that we need 
in order to be present with suffering because it takes energy. It ta- it's difficult. But that suffering that's in us needs our love and attention or it will continue to insist uh, and kind of like look for it. So I, I'd say like that, that for me, being able to move back and forth between those two core practices um, allows for both of them to really be possible and to be kind of like, yeah, to, 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 to function. This might be a good time for us to just address sort of the, um, the difference between hedonism and um, giving care to the self or focusing on what's beautiful in life. I can imagine some people saying like, well, I, I don't have time to, you know, sit around and think about what's beautiful because there's so much horrible um, activities going on in the world, I need to address that. So let's talk about that difference between hedonism and um, compassion. And then even let's broaden it out to the the social justice arena and say, you know, the difference between the idea of acceptance or forgiveness and a kind of justification of what has occurred. Yeah. I think that we're 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 all deeply hedonistic and the more that we can recognize that in ourselves the more that we that we won't see conflicts between caring for myself and caring for others um so when i'm engaging in any type of uh social justice uh actions when i'm getting arrested like whatever i'm doing why like, why am I doing it? Oh, well, I'm, I'm doing it because of the injustice in the world. Okay, there's injustice in the world, but so why are you acting? You're not, like, there are other people aware of this injustice that aren't act- acting. Why are you doing it? And if we can recognize that I'm doing it because I like to. I'm doing it because I feel, like, living beings seek to reduce suffering and find happiness. We're often really fucking confused about how to actually go about that, but that's all that motivates life. Um, we, we try to reduce suffering and, and thrive, and, and, that's, and if we can recognize, like, um, like one of the things that uh, Marshall Rosenberg talks about in nonviolent communication is that we, one of the most primary needs that a human being has is the need to contribute to life. And you can tell because when someone has that need met, if someone tells, gives you the feedback that like what you did just made my life way better, there's almost nothing that feels better than that. And so recognizing that my needs and others' needs aren't separate, and they're certainly not in conflict, And if I can see that whatever is motivating me is my model for how to suffer less and have more more well-being, and my model might be fucked, my model might be really sending me in the opposite direction, and it often does, but that's, that's what's motivating it. That's what's animating me. And so if you see a conflict there, between taking care of myself and taking care of others, recognize that those two things are both things that you want. 
and that drive you. And then if you, if you can just be like, I want both of those things, then it stops feeling like as much of a conflict. And you can just want both. And you can do your best to find strategies or actions that meet our collective needs. So I feel like like I'm a unapologetic hedonist. And I and when I see other people as in that light, that's when I see your beautiful aliveness. Like when I see that you're you just like we we all just don't want to suffer. We all just are doing our best to to thrive and find wellness. And like that's what's animating us and we might be really fucking confused about it, but that's what we're trying to do. And we're all in it together. And if I can see that motivating you, then it's like that's when I can see like the energy of life in you that I can really love and appreciate and see the beauty in. So like for the hedonist part, I feel like that's, it it's really comes down to like looking observing like what is the energy that is animating me why do i want to do anything um and this sort of idea that that like i can find that kind of universality of of motivations in anything that's kind of motivating me and then i can see it in other people yeah it's important i think to acknowledge sort of what motivates us and that's such a huge question and behavior change literature, but also just for ourselves. Like what makes me excited to get up in the morning? And our worldview um, is so sort of centered in individual self that there is the idea that selflessness and selfishness are somehow mutually exclusive to one another. And yet when you see that Um, you know, my suffering is bound to yours and my liberation is bound to yours, then whatever I'm doing that is in service to healing will be ideally mutually beneficial to both. And in fact, there's really awesome literature coming out um, from Dr. Keltner over just on the other side of the bridge there about the way that states of awe and wonder actually increase prosociality and you know our desire to support one another and to be in community and so i think you know one of the things i remind myself is like you can't truly give from a state of depletion and that usually when I am there's sort of like an expectation that goes along with it right and so much of life and and I think so much of this practice of starting to understand how do we see reality and and what's actually there and not just our expectations and our preferences is about learning to not become so addicted to our preferences that you know I want things to be this way and and my unconditional regard and my unconditional love for this world or for myself is dependent on whether my preferences are met. And so there is this element, I think, that leads into, well, how do we learn to embrace negative emotions? How do we learn to embrace the situations where our needs are not being met or our preferences are not being met? And and the degree, you know, there's, there's uh, certainly evidence to say that the more negative emotional states we have, 
the more health issues we have, but that is completely dependent on our evaluation again of negative emotions. When we're able to actually embrace them as meaningful, as helpful, as even you know roadmaps to being able to meet our needs more effectively, then all of a sudden they become something that doesn't hinder our health, but can actually have you know dis, uh, uh, clarifying and salutary outcomes for us. So you speak about this a lot, of course, welcoming our negative experiences. Um, what do you say to someone who's like, um, no, anger, sadness, don't want them? Who, 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 who are these people who can embrace their negative emotions? Yeah, nobody wants them. I mean, why would you? Like, it, like if someone just like, I, I feel a lot more skeptical of the people who are like, oh yeah, they're great. I kind of, I'm just like, I don't, like, I think you're maybe saying something that you would like to believe as opposed to something that you really believe. Um, and we all do that. That's fine. I mean, we, and I feel like that, that can be a good thing too. It's like, I'd like to believe this. And so I'm going to act as though I do. Um, I think there, again, it, it, it can get kind of subtle, but so when someone is saying like, how could I accept injustice? How can I accept, um, yeah, so whether it's like a, a fucked up situation in the world, I don't want to accept it, or whether it's my own, you know, rage, I don't want to accept it. The question for me is, the, the first thing that I, want to, that I want to see is like the part of you that hates your rage, the part of you that hates this injustice, I love that part of you. That's the part of you that just wants to suffer less, that wants the world to be better and wants wellness. Fucking beautiful. Of course you want that. So we, we love that part. Is it possible to at the same time love the part of you that's filled with rage? And the part of you that's filled with rage, what is it looking for? Like, how is that, how is that have the same motivation, the same aliveness in it, the same drive to suffer less? Like the part of me that's like, yeah, like the, that won't let go of that rage, right? There's the part of me that hates my rage. Beautiful. Of course, you don't, you just want to be happy. Then there's a part of me that won't let go of my rage. Well, if I let go of my rage, I'm going to get, you know, I'll be a victim. I'll get walked, all, you know, people will walk all over me. Like wh whatever it is, it can be different things for different people. But the rage also just wants the same thing. That, that um, and if we can see that nature in whatever, however mind is manifesting, mind can manifest as, However the fuck it died in a lot of different ways. And that's one of the things that um, I was talking with a, a friend about this earlier. So I was just um, for a few months doing some research at Google. I'm not there anymore, but I was doing some research. We were, um, I'm really interested in the idea of um, growing peer counseling and especially making it like really affordable and, and accessible. And so we were like looking at ways to try to create high quality, easily accessible peer counseling. And I'm gonna be doing it in, in some other ways now. 
but the some of the research that we were doing there um i we had this assessment tool that we built that was uh had people go through these video prompts of like difficult interactions and had them kind of respond and i invited a bunch of meditators to try it out and what i found was about half of them were like top decile like really really great at staying present and compassionate when someone was upset and about the other half were like in the bottom decile and when i dug in with them what i learned was some people spend their meditation time getting really comfortable and taking care of their suffering and they get really good at being present with difficult emotions some people spend their meditation time avoiding their suffering and just trying to like get away from it and they train themselves in not wanting to go anywhere near distress and they get worse at it i'm assuming or at least they they or maybe they just don't get better but um this kind of capacity to to get to know our suffering and to see the beauty in it like the our ability to love to embrace our suffering with compassion really just comes from being able to see see it clearly you know it's this energy that just wants to be loved and understood like every fucking living thing and we can if as soon as we can see that that's what's animating it then it's like that's all that then it's just like yeah that's that's all i want for you and it's it's easy to have that kind of connection but the problem is when we're attached to i don't like how you're looking for love <laughs> i don't like how you're asking for love you're asking for love or you're asking for safety or you're asking for understanding by telling me i'm worthless or by you know whatever that strategy is and if we focus on how i don't like how you're asking then we don't then we can't sort of look beyond and see like what you're asking for and let me actually how i can be your ally as you're describing that i'm thinking about an idea you put out in this book that you know our pain actually reveals to us what matters to us and what is important to us and i'm thinking about how uh i think we often feel uh we don't have the energy to confront what is going on in the world today and where does this energy come from and i think uh what's so beautiful about this approach is that there is a a deep energy you're calling it this animating principle within that and when we get to connect to it it actually can fuel that and i think you know i'll just call out as well the way that we've really demonized stress in our culture which um is very understandable because we see the ways that we are engaging in work lives and in relationships that aren't providing us with a sense of being met and being seen and being loved um in these ways that we're s- sort of so deeply longing for in so many moments and yet now we're saying okay well if you're stressed something is wrong about that and you know how many stress reduction programs are out there right now and so don't have the stress and in a sense it's it's again this kind of culturally turning away from that voice within us that is saying hey something that matters here is at stake 
right? And when we can start to tap into, oh, this feeling of stress is actually just my body mobilizing energy towards action. And if I can take a moment to get out of my sort of habitual thought patterns and responses in life and say, what matters here? What is, what is important to me, then I can start directing that energy and mobilizing it in a way that is hopefully more effective or more skillful. You know, to the, uh, we're always learning. But um, you mentioned, though, uh, that holding pain with compassion leads to transformation, right? Uh, bringing up pain without compassion is just rumination. So how can someone know? Am I ruminating or am I actually transforming something? Yeah, so Thich Nhat Hanh in the, the Yogacara school of Buddhism um, has this whole like um, description of we have, there's a, a, of sort of the, how suffering and transformation works in the sort of the, their conception of consciousness. But uh, the way that Thich Nhat Hanh, will, he'll draw this uh, diagram of there's, you have a, a seed of suffering in your store consciousness and a seed of mindfulness or compassion in your store consciousness. And when you get in touch with whatever pain is in you, maybe on purpose or maybe it just comes up, you know, triggered in whatever way, manifests, that's, uh, they describe that as sort of like the seed is watered and it manifests in the mind consciousness, like a sort of the garden of your mind consciousness. And then what he said, the way that he describes it is in that moment, if you are able to water the seed of mindfulness and compassion so that, so you, this is the sort of um, your suffering that's kind of like the seed of your suffering is sort of manifested in your mind consciousness. You water the seed of mindfulness so that it can fully embrace and hold the suffering that's present in your mind consciousness that leads to transformation. When you bring up suffering, and what happens is uh, when, he, when they describe transformation, what they mean is mindfulness and compassion embrace your suffering. And then when you're, then what happens is the seed of suffering when it returns to your store consciousness becomes weaker, becomes less likely to manifest. Um, However, if you water the seed of suffering in yourself uh, and it manifests in your mind consciousness and it's not embraced with mindfulness and compassion, then every time it manifests, it gets stronger. You're sort of practicing anger. You're practicing grief. You're practicing fear um, if, it's not, if it's not held with mindfulness and compassion. And then it gets easier to manifest and it comes up more readily. Um, so... There's a, now the, the, the nice thing, and especially in a place like this, we can sort of talk about um, the mindfulness and compassion that is holding your suffering doesn't need to come from you. It can come from somebody else. And in fact, like when we think about a therapeutic relationship, we can think about in that same principle that it's like, I'm bringing my suffering, I'm manifesting my suffering and you're manifesting your compassion. And uh, you know, mind is dual and permeable, so that there's uh, that you know it's it's transformed in that sense. But that's the kind of what actually does the work. Um, 
the uh, the question of how to know is really a question of feel, of um, it's clear if if you're really like fully embracing, if I'm experiencing some grief in me right now, and I'm really fully embracing it with compassionate presence, there's a sweetness. And it's the, the, the um, image that Thich Nhat Hanh uses is it feels like you're holding a crying baby. Um, and there's like a comforting kind of experience that's there. And, um, and if you're not, it's, or, uh, it's a, a little bit unclear, but the question is sort of like, does it, does it feel like transformation? Are, are you over time, if you're practicing in a way that's over time, you don't feel that seed of anger or seed of fear in you becoming not as strong? then he would say, well, examine your practice and kind of like look at like, is there something that's missing? Is there something you're misunderstanding? And there's some really interesting data. So Yak Pansip is uh, one of the, our first kind of affective neuroscientists. He's like the person who coined the term affective neuroscience. Um, Pansip uh, focused his, he passed away recently, but he focused his career on um, understanding sort of our basic emotional circuitry and like look, trying to understand what are the basic emotional circuits that all mammals share. And part of his research talks about there are two what he would call positive affective circuits that all mammals have, and they're the play circuit and the care circuit. Um, if you're laughing and having fun, if we could image your brain with enough detail, then we would see that your play circuit is active. If you're feeling warmth and love, and we could image, if we could image your brain with enough detail, we would see that the care circuit is active. And he described um, how when any sort of threat response, uh, when the brain is sort of activated in a threat response way, whether it's um, rage or fear or grief, Activating one of those two circuits, either naturally or using microelectrodes in animal studies, uh, radically reduced distress and reduced um, activity in the sort of threat-related circuits. And basically, he would sort of talk about care and play as being our primary um, emotional regulation tools that we have, and which for me kind of maps onto practice in the sense of like, in therapy, we often really focus on care. We focus on compassion. But for a lot of us, humor is like just as helpful. And especially if you work in like a um, high needs or like direct service kind of setting, what you find is often in those communities, there's a really kind of often kind of dark sense of humor that develops. And I remember I was working in Oakland at a... Um, intensive day treatment center for kids and kind of talking with people about like the the jokes that would happen um, and whether they were inappropriate or things like that. And what was, uh, so we did this training on secondary trauma and the whole, everybody on staff was just like, this is how we don't get traumatized <laughs> is the more that we can laugh about something, the more that we don't take it home. And so like that idea of like understanding that care, compassion, and play or humor are like these kind of core tools for 
affective um, regulation. Yeah. So I want to have us talk a bit about the role of um, social connection in all of this and social conflict in all of this. Um, we know that social connection is a huge uh, stress buffering element. So there's even you know a lot of evidence coming out now from some of my colleagues at Carnegie Mellon that's showing that really what uh, mechanism is driving this link between mindfulness practices and health outcomes really has to do with the fact that when I'm able to have this level of emotion regulation, I don't experience so much social anxiety. And so I actually get to have more social connectivity, which means more social interactions on a daily basis, but primarily more meaningful social connections. And social connection is a primary determinant of our health and well-being outcomes. More of a determinant than smoking, more of a determinant than wearing a seatbelt. And so perhaps, you know, it's really this uh, enhanced sense of connection uh, that, you know, is facilitated by play and other things that's actually helping us to, to benefit from these mindfulness practices more directly. Um, so certainly there's this beautiful protective quality. At the same time, we have a lot of social conflict. And you've done a lot of work um, in the Occupy movement. Tim was, you know, uh, a, a key role in the Occupy movement and was actually facilitating a lot of the discussions. And what you saw is a bunch of people who could not agree on things. Right. And so there's now the, you know, this opportunity to say, well, how do we come from a needs based place? And you present this in your book of how do we recognize that each one of our needs as an individual is inherently valuable? And sometimes we forget that. And so we end up in these uh, situations that are no longer dialogue, but are full of conflict or defensiveness. Um, and so you suggest, okay, we need to really first work on ourselves in order that we can then recognize that the person in front of us who may have been developed in the mind as an enemy actually is just doing the best that they can to meet their own needs as well, maybe really unskillfully, <laughs> as sometimes happens, but nonetheless, that's what they're doing. And so you suggest that, you know, as a kind of key component to being able to work through social conflict is, um, you know, to recognize that both needs are valuable. And although we may not meet them perfectly, there is going to be a much better um, flow and alignment moving through if we can at least agree that each one of those is inherently valuable. Where have you seen this play out well? And do you think that this is, you know, uh, a key uh, given just the, the degree of social conflict, the degree of political corruption? You know, can you speak to those who might feel like, with how fucked up everything is, how is just being compassionate going to solve anything? So like how how broad do you think this can go? So I, I have a couple of friends who are um, cloistered or hermits. And um, so there's a, there's like that, but um, it's a really difficult practice, but there's like, there is this, the presence of compassion in somebody's own practice, I feel like, is, uh, I don't know. I, I'm, it may, when, when I think about the sort of primacy of social interaction, I'm just like thinking about like 
um, Fapien, who's like a, a sort of a cloistered kind of hermit and like how joyful he is. Um, makes me just sort of like, you know, think about different ways of, of, uh, of, you know, how that works. When I think about conflict, um, so there's a, there's a quote, um, a James Baldwin quote, that's like, not everything that can be, not everything that you face can be changed but nothing can be changed until it's faced. And so what I would say is like, um, I feel really inspired in terms of living my life in such a way that's about like loving people. And like, as my practice is like, okay, so when I think about how am I practicing, like the sort of gauge for that is like, do I love the people in my life? Do I love the people that I meet? And that's hard. And, but a lot of it comes down to my capacity to be present with distress, my capacity to be, to maintain this sort of caring orientation when met with distress. And we all have, the, the issue is it, um, Denying your, uh, when you're at your capacity is not how to improve your capacity. And that's one thing. So I feel like a lot of people know like, oh, but like, isn't when you're like, isn't, isn't it important to be able to sort of withdraw? That's part of resilience. Like this sort of, you know, not always having this approach orientation. It's like, yeah. I mean, the idea is that like, if you're thinking about, um, a strength, it's like you, what recognizing this is beyond what I'm capable of and and kind of um, moving back into something and like taking care of myself is what's going to help me to, to develop that capacity greater. But, but I think, so when we talk about the relationships in our lives and when we talk about sort of our relationships with, in society, we have a lot of problems to solve. But when we face any type of frustration, anytime reality isn't the way we want it to be, there's some amount of distress that arises. That just fucking happens, right? It's just like, oh, this isn't how I wanted it to be, which is all the fucking time. And there's some, there's gonna be some part of you that's like, ugh. And, it, and that part of you wants some empathy. That part of you just wants somebody to be like, yeah, you, you really wish it was gonna be different. That's great, you know? You, you, you feel like it might have been better if it were different, sure. But the, the issue is every time we're facing problems together, we, there, distress arises. And if we don't have this capacity to be present with it and to have this sort of caring orientation to being able to, to my own distress and to other people's distress, then we're not even able to face the problem, much less solve it. 
And so the 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 question and and so it the the question isn't so much like okay well could we all just meditate all the time and our problems go away it's like that's fucking stupid but um but instead the the idea is like if you're finding that in trying to face problems we're just get we're, we're like getting so upset that we're not able to care for each other then it would make sense to try to develop that capacity more um and to and to to value that as sort of like yeah to as a, as a way of improving our ability to live together yeah i couldn't agree more that it's fucking stupid to think that um to think that mindfulness is a kind of magic bullet practice to make the world how we think it should be, right? Comes back to the cause and effect. And so um, as you were talking about the growth of the seed um, and its fruits earlier, I was thinking about um, a sloka that has kind of carried with me in my practices um, from the Yoga Sutras that is, uh, it's tapas vadyaya is vari pranidana and tapas is the transformation. And the old word, the saying was just to cook, to change the state of something. And so I think one thing to, to sort of recognize underlying this is what do I actually have the capacity to change? And svadhyaya means to sit next to oneself, right? Self-inquiry. Ishvari pranidana is the, the release. And so I think, you know, maybe we can end with just a recognition that there is also uncertainty and many things that we cannot control. Right. And so the ability to use these practices to become more clear and discerning in those things that I'm able to change and to act on those with a conviction and, and fueled by an awareness of what really matters to me, having come from going into, you know, being with my emotional state, but also the willingness to accept the things that are not in our control, you know, and this, we measure this as controllability awareness in some of the literature, one's ability to actually um, discern which things you should take action towards and which things to let go of. And that's actually a better indicator of health than any particular coping mechanism. So um, maybe you can speak a little bit to this idea of uncertainty, especially, yeah. I don't know, with the climate crisis and, and the state of our world today, how can people um, use these practices to um, meet what is left unresolved in their hearts? Yeah. Yeah, I, um, I think that one thing that happens whenever, whenever we're trying to develop our capacity to be present with suffering, we always end up kind of confronted with what's in philosophy called theodicy, which is basically just sort of like, well, why, why is there suffering? Like, like, why do we have to go through this? Um, why is there pain in life? Like, what's the fucking point? Like, what, like, like, my mind tells me everything would be better if there weren't pain. And so how am I supposed to feel okay? And I think, um, I mean, even from like a kind of an Ericksonian uh, standpoint, like our sort of first stage of, of psychosocial development and Erickson is trust versus mistrust. And this sort of idea of like, 
how can I feel a basic sense of trust in everything that I can't control when I, when, when I recognize it's just like the, there's a lot of pain in the world. And so we all have different ways of uh, relating to this, but if we want to be able to develop this kind of equanimity that allows us to be present in different situations, like we need to be able to look at what we can't control with some amount of trust that it's okay that I can't control it. And I feel like when we start to get into um, developing sort of these like states of, of equanimity and compassion, we hit that at some point of like, I, I don't like not being able to control things and I don't trust that they're going to be okay. Our minds have in many ways developed to, to, to try to come up with, to sort of constantly tell us how life could be better, to come up with ideas or images or models of what would be better. Like, and that's really what a human mind is supposed to do, right? Like the whole point of having a mind is, um, I'm noticing that there's a sensation of hunger and my mind's like, oh, there's food over there. Go get it, right? It, it's, it's like, you know what would be a better state than this is the one I'm picturing. And yet that capacity that allows us to do so much, that capacity that allows us to be like, you know what would be better than right now? It's the thing I'm imagining. It also ruins fucking everything it, it like it, it it makes it really hard to have any type of equanimity because your mind always has a picture of how the world could be better than it is and you say the world is perfect as it is and your mind's like i could fucking easily picture a better world than this um but it's something that we have to face at some point the world is precisely as it is. It's not under our control. And to the degree that I really believe there are elements of the world that are unacceptable, I won't be able to, to, to really be here in them. Like I'm going to be caught in that. So it's kind of like what you were talking about in terms of like plastic and cars and like when you were when you were younger. So the the first step in that practice is kind of recognizing like that aversion is beautiful. It's perfect. It's like that part of it, it's like I would I would like the world to be the best it possibly could be. That's what it's saying. It's like great. That's what you're supposed to do. That that's what your mind is supposed to do is like be like I'd like the world to be even better than it is. Yeah, thank you. Um, but then the then the so then you then the question. So the first thing that happens when you kind of recognize when you kind of like appreciate your aversion is it calms down a little bit, and it's a little easier to kind of see the world as it is. It's like it, you're not so deeply kind of viewing the world through that prism. 
but then eventually we do end up having to like there's a um in the book I quote there's like a one of my favorite headlines for the onion ever was um god admits he's addicted to killing babies um and it's like that's that's true like bad shit happens and we have to sort of like look at it and like how is it possible to feel some equanimity, to feel some acceptance, to feel, to sort of, to have some like, I can feel okay, I can feel some amount of trust when we see that's what's happening. I don't have an answer. The practices that really help me um, There's an idea in, well, there's an idea in, in many schools of Buddhism that suffering is what makes compassion possible. Um, there's an idea in Tibetan Buddhism and they're a little like, I come from a Zen lineage. Uh, they have a harder time with teleology, but Tibetan Buddhism are happy to create myths about, you know, sort of why things are the way they are. There's an idea in Tibetan Buddhism that the human realm is the ideal realm to be born. That if you're born in a hell realm or an animal realm, it's not as good. But also if you're born in a deva realm in which anything you want just happens as soon as you want it, there's no opportunity to develop anything that, would be, that we would consider a virtue. There's no opportunity for patience or compassion or anything that you anything that you like about yourself comes from the fact that you experience suffering. There's a saying in Buddhism that um, all all compassion comes from suffering, and great compassion comes from great suffering. And when we think about the people in our world that kind of exemplify great compassion, people like. Nelson Mandela, people like Thich Nhat Hanh, they're people who've suffered really deeply. And it's not true that all suffering turns into compassion. Like we wish that were true and it's not. But I can say I believe that it's true that all compassion comes from having suffered. And it's, it's about can, it, can we turn our suffering into compassion? And so they have this sort of like... Um, theodicy that we have, that life gives us enough, life gives us suffering in order to be sort of fuel for us to develop virtue, for us to develop what, you know, the, the, what's beautiful about being a human. And whether that's true or not, it's, I find it a helpful way of thinking and, a, and a, a way that kind of inspires me. I mean, the, like, whether you want it or not, life gives you just big fucking piles of suffering. And if you can be like, okay, I know like I'm tasked with transforming that into compassion, um, then it can at least like be a, an, an orienting way of, of handling it when it's given to you. Um, and so for me, it's like this, like, well, yeah, I, I'm not in control of 
the transmissions that I'm given, the suffering and the beauty that I'm given. But what I am in control of is, is what I do with them. And so what I wanna do is I wanna appreciate everything beautiful that comes into my life. And I wanna embrace and transform whatever suffering comes into my life. And just like, cause I feel like that's, you know, that's, that's what it means to sort of fully live a life as a human. I really appreciate you being here. And um, can we give a round of applause to Tim Desmond? You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website, ciis.edu slash podcast.